This week, organic molecules floating in space. Nobody thought initially that there was anything out there in space except for hydrogen and maybe a little bit of helium. And encouraging scientific thinking in schools. We come from monkeys, well, apes, not monkeys, apes. My dad comes from gorillas. (laughs) We come from newts. Plus treating traumatic brain injury and the latest from New Horizons. This is the Nature Podcast for July the 16th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. In 1919, graduate student Mary Leah Hager at the University of California found some strange features in the light coming from distant stars. Light travels a long way to get to Earth, and certain wavelengths are absorbed by whatever's floating around in between. Hager noticed some unique patterns, which seemed to be caused when the light was absorbed by clouds of material in interstellar space. These patterns became known as the diffuse interstellar bands. Usually scientists can match these absorption patterns with known molecules to identify what the material is made of. But these bands didn't match anything. Fast forward a few decades to the 80s and 90s, and scientists discovered a potential molecular match, But they've had to wait till now to conclusively identify the culprit, as John Meyer from the University of Basel in Switzerland explained to Lizzie Gibney. The whole exciting bit came about with the discovery of the buckyball molecule, the molecule which is shaped like a football with 60 carbon atoms at each corner uh, of the football in 30 years ago, which led, of course, to the Nobel Prize. And immediately... After the discovery of this thing, we decided to develop and apply methods to measure the positively charged uh, buckyball molecule, like in space, where molecules tend to lose one electron. So we applied our technique on this charged buckyball molecule. Astronomers uh, made measurements in a similar region with their telescopes and found that the features which we saw were very close to what the astronomers were measuring. And this happened in 93, 94, so, so 20 years ago. And how has it taken you so long to confirm that the, that the signal definitely is being caused by these buckyball ions? <laughs> very good question. It took 20 years of experimental development. And it was so technically challenging, creating conditions such as in interstellar space, In other words, temperatures near the absolute zero and extremely high vacuum. So this required technologies which were developed with lasers, molecular beams and such techniques. And finally, after 20 years, uh, uh, we managed to measure the signature of this uh, positively charged buckyball. This all happened this year and compared it to the astronomical measurement and it's absolutely bang on. It's spectacular. There's just really no doubt uh, that this proves, first of all, that the first definite identification of the two diffuse interstellar bands, and secondly, the consequences, I think, for astronomy and how molecules are formed and perhaps even, you know, life and so on, are quite spectacular that this positively charged buckyball is out there in space, stable. And, of course, other scientists using different telescopes have found that um, there are buckyballs in their, in their full atomic form also in space. Is that right? What has happened in astronomy itself uh, just uh, in the past five years is that 
astronomers have looked at the infrared rather than the optical. And in the infrared, the astronomers discovered the characteristic signatures of the buckyball molecule itself, in other words, without it being charged, and the signals come out of areas like uh, planetary nebulas, where carbon-rich and other stars are spitting out the material into space. And in this extremely hostile environment, these molecules, these amazing molecules are being formed. And the follow-up, of course, is, is now that we could show that the ionized form is also in uh, space, formed in these hostile environments. The electrons are removed. They are spat out uh, into these diffuse clouds. The gravitational forces then form the clouds, and these molecules just stay there and are essentially indestructible. And you mentioned that this might have implications even for, for finding life elsewhere in the universe. Why, why is that, and why are buckyballs so exciting for both astronomers and chemists to study? Because of the amazing complexity and stability. I mean, nobody thought initially that there was anything out there in space except for hydrogen and maybe a little bit of helium. And with the discovery of simple molecules, the whole thing changed. And this led to a whole area which is called nowadays astrobiology. And now we take, make a big leap in this whole area and one finds very complex stable molecules. And one has to now think about really the formation processes of the smaller molecules. Maybe it is really the big molecules like the buckyballs and the ionized forms which are the precursors for the formation of all the smaller molecules, which then, by various chemical reactions, lead to the formation of biologically active species. And I think you mentioned that these bands that you've now positively, definitely identified are only two of a much bigger group. So are there there still other mysteries left to be solved? Oh, yes, there's always mysteries to be solved. It's the beginning, as I always say. So the field is wide open now for the next generation of scientists. That was John Meyer talking to Lizzie Gibney. The results of John's paper are out in Nature this week and are also discussed in a News and Views article. Find both at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up in the research highlights, frictionless fluids and why sea-dwelling jellies are boneless. But first, Noah Baker has been finding out how to cultivate a scientific mindset in schoolchildren. This is the sound of Class 5 at Blackhorton Primary School in Devon, England, just before lunchtime. The hubbub is typical, but the school isn't quite. When it comes to science, they believe that lessons should be directed by the students, not by the teachers. Here's Tom Pether, the head of school at Blackhorton. Children have got enough questions and enough ideas of their own that actually us teachers just need to feed off what they're bringing to the classroom rather than us actually tell them what to think. I met a few of the students, all aged between 10 and 11. I'm Louis. I'm Emily. I'm Rory. I'm Florence. I'm Bo. I asked them to think of any question they wanted to know answers to. They had a lot. Why is light so fast? Are there any other colours other than the ones we know better? Why do people have different colour hair? And Why do people care about fashion? It's rubbish. Why does gravity pull us down to earth? How did we learn to speak without communicating? It wasn't just questions either. There were discussions and theories too. Why are the leaves on a tree green in spring but brown in, um, in autumn? They're green because they're growing 
and then they're brown because, because the, the sun isn't there anymore. Um, the sugars are in the leaves, and then the sun coming down onto the sugars makes them this brilliant green colour, and then... Um, Actually, not all trees are green. Yeah, I know. Some There's red ones, so there must be different chemicals in each, each tree, because yeah. each tree must take up different... And then they started to work out how to test their theories. Experiment! Experiment. Test! I just said thank you very much. Put, keep one yeah, tree in the shade and keep another tree in... in in, in, in the sunlight, sunlight. And see and what happens. Sunlight. The more they discussed, the more ideas came out. Snippets of knowledge and experience mixed with ten-year-old logic to come to some answers. For example, after some deliberation, the group came to a consensus on what they thought all the dimensions were. First dimension doesn't exist. Second dimension doesn't exist. Third dimension is everything. Fourth dimension is black hole. And fifth dimension is the universe. universe. That's what I think. Many of their assertions I knew to be incorrect, but to the teachers of Black Autumn, that's not the point. It's not saying, no, you're wrong, that's rubbish, go back and sit down, because that's going to switch off a lot of scientists and a lot of learners. So it's always just saying, oh, that's interesting, and, and running with what the children think, because, I mean, I think the first thing you need to think in the classroom is that I don't have all the answers. I've got a few, but the children maybe don't have all the answers either, but together we can work out a way of trying to have come to some sort of answer. Black Orton isn't alone in its thinking. In 2006, an education initiative started in Germany called the Little Scientists' House Foundation, or Haus der Kleinenforscher in German. Here's Michel Fritz, the chairman of the foundation. The founders sat together and not just asked themselves why. They thought about what could be done to improve education in Germany. And their answer was, we start, we have to start earlier. Children uh, are born scientists. The curiosity of uh, little children has no limits. And the House of the Klein Foster Foundation supports not exactly the children, but supports the pedagogical staff and teachers to promote that spirit of the children. Through workshops and activity packs, the Little Scientist House Foundation teaches teachers new ways to approach their lessons. Teachers all over the world are taught to give answers and not taught to uh, teach um, thinking about answers and not taught to uh, go with the questions of the, with the children's questions. And that's our most important challenge. That's what we have to do to give them the motivation and to encourage them to, uh, to go with the children. Since its beginnings, the initiative has become the largest of its kind in Germany and has spread all over the world as far as Thailand and Australia. But why push for this kind of learning? I spoke to Michael Rice from the Institute of Education in London. A lot of governments around the world are concerned about how their country does in tests. Now, the danger for that for science is that we end up with a lot of young people getting a more fact-based approach to learning science when they're in primary schools. And while some children like that, a lot of children end up losing some of that wonderful enthusiasm for science that is frankly endemic among five to ten-year-olds. Initiatives like the Little Scientist House aim to supplement this fact-based learning with free thinking. While Michael agreed with the basis of this initiative, he did warn against going too far. 
if you just concentrate on how science is done, after a while, actually, this becomes less interesting for students and their own knowledge doesn't advance as much. So in a way, I, for myself, probably wouldn't want entirely to go overboard on the idea that you can never be wrong, but I do like the very supportive atmosphere that these sort of programmes have. Working out the balance is always tricky, for teachers more than anyone. Here's Tom Pether again from Black Horton School. When you first start on teaching, it is quite a risk and it's quite a leap in the dark. I think you need to work in an environment where it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to try things and it's okay to take risks. And that's exactly what we want our children to do. So if we're modelling it as teachers, if we can be big enough to say, actually, that didn't work, I made a mistake there, let's try it this way instead. And that's the way science works, really, as well. So, I mean, if we can do that as teachers, then then we're modelling that for the for the children. In the meantime, like thousands of others around the world, the students of Black Horton will keep on questioning. Does space go on forever? I think yes. Not yes. because I think the whole of space, I don't know why it would stop. It's got uh, This is the question that like, messes my brain up because like I hit the world and then there's this whole thing and I just want to find out everything. I want to just build a spaceship when I'm older. That can just fly around and go into space for ages. They've already invented a space holiday, so you're probably going to get one by your when you're older. A space holiday? No, I would never want to go on a space holiday. That was Noah Baker reporting from Black Orton Primary School in southwest England. You also heard from Michael Rice, Michelle Fritz, and Tom Pether. There's a special package of articles in Nature about science education from kindergarten to college and beyond. Check that out at nature.com slash STEM. That's STEM as in science, technology, engineering and maths. Coming up, treating the effects of traumatic brain injury. And, in the news, the latest from the New Horizons mission to Pluto. That's after these research highlights with Sharmini Bundell. Swimming bacteria can turn a normal liquid into a superfluid. Superfluids have zero viscosity. There's no friction within the liquid. That makes them behave weirdly. They can defy gravity by creeping up the side of a glass, for example. Researchers wondered if the motion of bacteria could change how fluids behave. So they added E. coli bacteria to water and then spun the solution in a machine. The movement from the bacteria's tails helped counteract the spinning forces in the liquid. With enough bacteria, the liquid's viscosity dropped to zero. The hard work of all these swimming bugs could be used to power a motor. The full paper is in Physical Review Letters. E. coli aren't the only thing floating about in liquids this week. Comb jellies are a squishy group of animals that swim about in the oceans. But it turns out they haven't always been squidgy. Fossil jellies from the Cambrian period, about half a billion years ago, display rigid spokes and plates. These hard body parts may have served as support or armour. For more on these ancient jellies, head on over to Science Advances. We're off to New Horizons HQ soon, but first, could brain injury cause long-term brain degeneration? And if so... How? Jeff Marsh reports. High-impact sports like American football and boxing come with risks. One of the most talked about is taking hard or repeated bashes to the head. 
Some scientists think that players who suffer frequent concussions or traumatic brain injuries could develop long-term neurodegenerative conditions like chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, and even Alzheimer's disease. But at this point, it's just a correlation. No one knows if a bump to the head now can cause these brain diseases later. A new study by Kunping Lu from Harvard Medical School, however, has pinpointed a potential cause. Lu and his team looked at the role of a protein called tau in brain injury. You may have heard of tau as it's linked to Alzheimer's disease, where it's often found in abnormal bundles. If you look at the brain of boxers, American football player, or veteran with a CTE, they have identified extensive tau tingle. When working normally, tau proteins are crucial for brain cells. Tau's job is like highway maintenance. It supports structures within the cell called microtubules. These are like highways shifting essential cargo around the cells. When tau starts acting up, these highways get clogged up with traffic, and this gridlock is a hallmark of a dying cell. But whether the tau is causing the neuron's demise wasn't clear. These tangles likely occur many years after injury, so therefore it's not known this tau-related pathology is caused or the consequence of TBI-related neurodegeneration. To look into these toxic tau proteins more closely, Kunping and his team needed something they could study a bit more easily than NFL players' brains. To determine when the toxic protein appear after TBI, we model TBI in mice and found a cyst form is induced in the brain depend on injury severity and frequency. And most strikingly, it's produced as early as 12 hours after injury. So if you get hit on the head hard enough or just enough times, then your neurons create this bad form of the tau protein, killing the cell and spreading to others, eventually leading to the hallmarks of diseases like CTE and Alzheimer's. Yes, these provide the first evidence directly linking TBI to Alzheimer's and CTE, and actually identify major culprit is this tau protein. But the team didn't stop there. They then developed an antibody that matched the tau protein and which could subdue its effects. You can eliminate and neutralize the ability of this toxic protein to cause and spread neurotoxicity. And in fact, if treating the traumatic brain injury mice with this antibody potently prevent tau apathy development and spread and restore the brain structure and function so does this mean that we've discovered a way of preventing and even curing neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and CTE? Kun Ping Lu is optimistic. I think that is potentially the implication. And definitely we will need to test this possibility. But based on traumatic brain injury model, yes, we can get rid of this uh, machete protein and prevent TBI from causing Alzheimer's and CTE in a mouse model. Does this mean you're going to take up boxing? <laughs> Hopefully not. I cannot. But I think the implication is, I think, if you have a traumatic brain injury, I think it's critical for to take care before it go on to next damage. Because one mild concussion, body have defense system to get rid of them. You have a headache, maybe a couple, couple of weeks. But if you have repetitive damage, that causes a problem. If I have a traumatic brain injury, I want to make sure I get rest before I actually go on to do damage. That was Kun Ping Lu in Boston, not taking up boxing as a hobby.
Time now for our news chat, and Alex Whitsey joins me on the line from New Horizons HQ. Alex, it must have been a pretty exhausting and emotional couple of days on the front line. Absolutely, it's been it's been crazy up and down roller coaster ride here. Um, of course, this this mission to Pluto has been going through space for for over nine years now, and it was all working towards this culmination last night. Just a real twenty four hours intense of the mission flying past Pluto at super fast speeds, all of the science observations packed into this little tiny window. So nine, ten years of preparation just for this 24 hours of whoosh as we went by. So it's been about a decade since the since the probe was launched, but in the last couple of days only, we've started seeing really incredible images coming back. What information did we have from New Horizons before the actual flyby? So we've gotten back uh, before the flyby some some images that show the first ever detail on the surface of Pluto. I mean, Pluto had been nothing but a pretty much a, a washed out disk. We really had not much idea as to what was there. I mean, there might have been some some bright bits, some dark bits. And what New Horizons is showing us is what those bright bits and dark bits are. So we're seeing these features come into focus. You may have heard about strange-shaped objects they're talking about. There's a big bright shape they call the heart, because it's heart-shaped, it's very pretty, kind of some blobby round things they were calling the donut. Um, Large stretches of dark terrain called the whale. All these are informal names, of course, but what we're seeing is, is patches and shapes that are coming into clearer focus with that heart right in the center of it that New Horizons was looking at just before the flyby. In these results and images, are there any things that we just weren't expecting to see or weren't expecting to see in this detail? The scientists who are, who are of course, totally into this mission say that everything is unexpected simply because we had no idea what was there. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's going from a blank slate to details. And uh, I think perhaps the, the sheer amount of differences um, and the complexity on Pluto's surface, that you have these dark bits, these bright bits, these sharp lines, these um, squiggly terrains, hummocky-looking things, things that look like almost fault scarps in places, um, there's more, it's more complex in a more elaborate world, maybe a more vibrant, more geologically active world than they might have thought. And during the actual flyby, there wasn't any contact with New Horizons at all, was there? That's right. It basically went radio silent for almost 24 hours. And that was on purpose. It was basically so that the spacecraft could focus all its attention on looking at Pluto and its moons as it zipped right by. We assumed and hoped and, and thought it was doing science and taking pictures and all that, um, but we really didn't know until it foamed home on Tuesday night. What was the atmosphere actually like on the front lines when the news finally came back in that the mission had been a success and New Horizons had passed, passed by Pluto? Well, it was, it was crazy, right? I mean, the, the atmosphere had been so intense you know, all day, and then we were all jam-packed into this auditorium to, to watch a live feed of mission control. And then when that signal came down, I mean, you know, it's like a classic image. The NASA engineers start to cheer and clap and stand up, and they're so jubilant and happy that their spacecraft has made it. And the auditorium just erupted in cheers. I mean, everybody had their little American flags. It was all very exciting. Has New Horizons told us that it was a complete success or do we have to wait to find out whether it captured all the images and data that we set out to retrieve? We know its memory banks are full and they're full of data and it's full of the amount of data that they were expecting if the whole mission had gone as planned. So yes, we think it's got on board all the data and all the science that they had hoped for. 
Well, that's great for New Horizons, but what about us? When do we get to get all this data and start analysing it and start doing, you know, the high-level science we want to get out of this mission? Uh, it's absolutely starting to come down any time now. I mean, we're, we're talking on Wednesday here. This afternoon, we'll start to get some geology down. We'll start to get some closer-up images, some of the really high-resolution things during the, during the pass. And then um, throughout the, the days to come, Thursday, Friday, through the weekend, next week, um, you've probably heard about how it's going to take a while to get all the data down from New Horizons. There's so much on board, and the communications link is such a, a narrow kind of channel that uh, it's going to take 16 months to get all of the data down, but they're prioritizing to get the big ones down first. So those big, glorious data sets, those big pictures, high resolution of Pluto, its biggest moon share, and that's all coming down first. So we're going to be seeing stuff coming out any time now. It's going to roll out and get better over time. Alex, you were answering questions from Twitter throughout yesterday. What, what was the most left field and interesting question that you got asked? A lot of people like to ask why we aren't going into orbit or landing on Pluto, which I think is a great question because why fly all the way across the solar system and not actually stop, right? Um, but the problem, of course, is that stopping when you're flying you know, a rocket across space, stopping takes a lot of fuel and a lot of energy. And New Horizons already cost $720 million, already took almost 10 years to get there. So, you know, you want to fly by at a relatively cheap and fast, you know, mission first and then worry about orbiting later. But this, it's a great question, right? Like, why go there and then just fly by instead of st stopping for a visit? What was your favorite kind of non-sciencey moment at New Horizons HQ that you saw? Yeah, so one of, the, one of the greatest things for me was some of the history stuff that happened yesterday. In particular, the, the, the children of Clyde Tombaugh. So this is the astronomer who discovered Pluto in 1930. He was a farm boy from Kansas who managed to get a job at Lowell Observatory in Arizona because he was such a great observer. And his children, Annette and Alden Tombaugh, came to mission headquarters yesterday and they talked about what it would be like for their dad to have seen the planet, the planet that he discovered. Um, it was great because Annette Tombaugh, who's this wonderful, charming lady, was talking about how happy her dad would be to see this world become reality. And especially, it's got a heart on it, right? She said he would have loved that, that Pluto has a heart. It was, it was sweet and touching and wonderful, and it was so nice to see them. What a lovely story. Thank you so much, Alex, who is embedded in New Horizons HQ. Head on over to nature.com forward slash news for all the latest Pluto stories and go to nature.com forward slash Pluto and follow the link to the live blog to check out all the latest live information coming back from New Horizons. And if Pluto isn't enough physics for you, we have another story on the news site getting a lot of traffic. It's about a brand new particle, a pentaquark, that's been discovered at CERN. Nature.com slash news is the place to go for that. That's all for this week. Join us next time. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. So get in touch if you're excited about New Horizons or sick of all this plutocracy or if when you grow up, you want to be a buckyball. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. 